Hello, I'm Hannah Kaplan, and this is the WCS Wild Audio Podcast, where you'll find reported audio stories covering the latest news and newsmakers from the Wildlife Conservation Society's Global Conservation Program, Zoos and Aquarium, and their many partners. We've got a great show today, so let's get to it. Small-scale fisheries are the cornerstone of livelihoods and economies across the world, providing essential micronutrients to more than 4 billion people. What's more, they also employ more than 150 million people in the industry, the majority of whom live in the global south and are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. To learn more, Hannah Kaplan sat down with Hoyt Peckham, WCS Director of Community Fisheries. Hoyt manages a team supporting 30 country programs as they work to achieve a more sustainable and equitable approach to managing our marine resources. To help fund his way through college, Hoyt Peckham took on an unusual part-time job, diving through freezing waters to collect sea urchins. Noticing a decline in catch size, Hoyt joined a research team looking into the link between overfishing and urchin reproduction rates. But when Hoyt's team shared their findings with the Maine Urchin Harvesters Association, who partially funded the study, they were shocked by the response. And I was astonished by the reaction. They asked us to basically bury the results. We eventually were able to publish that work, but yeah, it was an eye-opener. Hoyt was struck by the stark contrast to the Maine lobster fisheries, which remain stable and lucrative, and in which fishers actively manage resources with their great-great-grandchildren in mind. Permits were tightly controlled and effort was tightly regulated. Lobster fishing was um, stable, lucrative, relatively predictable, safe. If you have a fishery that's open access, the, the incentives are such that it pays for a given fisher to fish until she or he catches the last fish. And that was very much the case for the urchin fishery in Maine in the 1990s. This contrast in management techniques was first-hand experience for Hoyt of the value community fishers could provide not as threats, but as stewards. We talk about them being small-scale, but too big to ignore and too important to fail. Fishers uh, are the most numerous ocean users around the world. They usually know the most about coastal ecosystems more than anybody else out there. Of course, you have scientists who um, focus on specific facets of an ecosystem, but fishers are living it every day. What's more, Hoyt cites the fact that coastal fisheries are complex social ecological systems. When coastal fisheries fail through overfishing or destructive fishing methods, they can have profound ecological, social, and economic ripple effects. The social and economic side of a fishery is inextricably entwined with the ecological side. We think now not about just conserving, for instance, a coral reef. We think about securing the the social ecological system that is built around a coral reef. And when fish stocks fail, the knock-on effects can be devastating. You see these, these effects directly in coral reefs, in mangroves, in seagrass ecosystems. These effects cascade inland, up to a thousand or more kilometers inland. People who live on the coast and inland need to get their protein somewhere else. So they turn to things like bushmeat hunting. The effects also can cascade offshore, things like piracy. Working in partnership with communities to enhance and secure their fisheries, says Hoyt, is a unique opportunity to support their climate change resilience by reversing environmental degradation. Hoyt gives the example of a WCS project based in the Chocó province of Northwest Colombia. 
Afro-Colombian fisherwomen who are called pianueras because they fish the pianwa, which is a mangrove clam. These women have been facing sharp declines in their catch. They'll go by canoe up into these mangrove channels, and then they wade uh, in the mud at low tide and collect these pianwa clams that are usually fastened to the really complex roots of the mangroves. But as catch rates began to decline, fisherwomen were driven to cut mangrove roots, which serve as nursery habitats and as a form of carbon sequestration in the search for clams. This was identified by um, our colleagues at um, WCS Colombia, in particular Paula Mejia and Catalina Gutierrez. And uh, Paula led an effort to engage um, some of these uh, pianueras to help identify what was going on with these populations. In a series of workshops, the fisherwomen combined their knowledge of clam reproduction with monitoring data contributed by WCS staff. This local knowledge of clam population change was critical to the success of the project. Paula and her team were pleasantly surprised because uh, it turns out that they didn't need to take uh, samples from the clams and send them out. The pianueras already knew exactly what the reproductive status of these clams was. Based on this knowledge, they identified and agreed to several management measures, which due to ownership from the community, didn't require enforcement. They chose to establish catch size rules. They identified the reproductive season. They banded together and drafted a set of rules for themselves and their communities. And the councils codified those rules into a fisheries management plan. Paola and her team expect to see impacts in clam population size, as well as mangrove forest health within the next several years. But Hoyt says, this approach cannot succeed without sustainable economic alternatives for communities here. He cites Judy Nehosa, a single mother who supports her family exclusively through clam fishing. In the weeks during which the community stops fishing to allow for clam reproduction, she has no other source of income. Stopping fishing during a four to six week period means that they have no way to feed their children. The point she was making was that no matter how much we want to do conservation, we cannot afford to do conservation if we're hungry. We in the conservation sector need to figure out ways to make conservation pay for local fishers like, like Judy. The most direct method would be to set up a compensation system along the lines of uh, sometimes called payment for ecosystem services. And I'm really excited about, about figuring out a way to live through the, the seasonal closures. Looking ahead, Hoyt sees huge opportunities for environmental bounce back, where indigenous peoples, local communities, and the human rights of fishers are prioritized. Fish stocks are inherently renewable. Equitable value chains can be rebuilt, and those can serve as these engines of prosperity and resilience. I'm very hopeful about the future of community fisheries, where local communities have prioritized renewal, replenishment, and equity in the reconstruction of their fisheries. We see extraordinary outcomes. I see WCS's role as pivotal in facilitating, fostering those enabling conditions, and then supporting people to reconstruct, renew these fisheries to their specifications, not ours. For WCS Wild Audio, I'm Hannah Kaplan. 
Today's episode was produced and reported by Hannah Kaplan with help from Dan Rosen and Nat Moss. The WCS Wild Audio Podcast is a production of the Wildlife Conservation Society. Please join us next week for a new episode, and don't forget to follow, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts.